Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. Dan Harris, welcome again to the show. You're actually one of my first guests, like over a year ago. The 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 podcast is that new? I did, I thought you'd been around forever. No, I started in January 2014. Oh wow! Well, I'm honored. So yeah, yeah, no, because you had you, when did you come out with 10 percent happier the book? March 2014. And I feel like ever since it's been on the best. Like every time I look at the bestseller list, your book is on there. <laughs> well, that's was lucky. that like a huge surprise to you? Well, lucky timing uh, on my part for you when you look at the list because it kind of pops in and uh, on and off. But yeah, the fact that it was a success was a huge surprise. I mean, when I tried to pitch the book to publishers, nobody wanted to buy it. Because you know why? Because publishers want a thousand percent happier. Like I think they think the audience wants a thousand percent happier. So that's why, like all these self help books are like change your life completely or lose six thousand pounds or make ten million dollars <laughs> in a year. But like the reality is, ten percent happier is a big difference, right? Absolutely. And the, the 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 more important reality is that this kind of idea of a silver bullet, uh, overnight change your life through the power of positive thinking or through the latest diet is complete demonstrable bullshit. Right. And uh, if, 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 if these silver bullets were real, we'd only need one book. We wouldn't need $11 billion a year worth of books. Right. So, I, I like the whole, that's the size of the whole self-help industry. That is. Um, and and uh, most of it is a, sort of a roiling sea of, of uh, garbage. And, and so the, the, the whole idea behind naming it 10% Happier was to counter-program. Right, like everybody just slow your roll a little bit. Like, let's just focus on step number one. Exactly. You know, and if you can get 10% happier, it means you're going in the right direction. Because I think a lot of people go... Uh, first off, I just want to say, this: we're doing this podcast in person. Last time we didn't. And what's great about the in-person is now I can really hear your voice. And it's no wonder, I just want to say you're anchor on the show Nightline. You're the anchor on, what is it, Saturday or Sunday for Good Morning America. Yeah, yeah. And you've got this, like, TV voice. Uh, it kind of comes through. Just, I, just, have, just just, a, I have this whiny voice, so uh, <laughs> I can never make it happen on TV for me. We're different varieties of Jew, I think, you know. <laughs> you've uh, got to, I got to, how did you do that? How do you, I can't do it. If you know, it's not, uh, just in my defense, it's not an affectation because my younger brother, uh, who was actually who was the guy who turned me on to you? My bro- younger brother's a venture capitalist, and he had read something you wrote about meditation, which was really funny and awesome. And he had sent it to me. This was years ago. Yeah. And uh, my younger brother, his voice is indistinguishable from mine. Our wives and parents cannot tell us apart on the phone. That's so funny. So he should he should call your wife on on her birthday or something and say, Hey, this is Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Can't even imitate your voice. Um, so okay, so. 
while you, let, let's let's reel it back just for a second. I just want to remind um, people if they haven't heard the earlier podcast, like what happened to you that led to you writing Ten Percent Happier, and then I'd like to get also into now you've just released this app uh, for Ten Percent Happier. Yeah. So um, you, you, you and I were talking before we uh, we uh, started the podcast about the fact that you've been very open about your failures in the past, which is a, a, sure. one of the reasons why people love you. And so my book starts with my biggest failure, which was uh, that I had a panic attack on national television live on, on Good Morning America back in 2004. I was anchoring the uh, news update. So my job was to come on and read the headlines at the top of each hour. And I had done the job before, so I didn't have any reason to foresee what was about to happen. But a couple of seconds into my shtick, I just I was I was hit with this huge lightning bolt of fear, and I uh, my lungs seized up, my throat constricted, my um, heart was racing, my palms were sweating, my mouth dried up. I just couldn't speak, couldn't breathe. So, so you're like mid pod, I mean mid broadcast. Yeah. Yes. Not podcast, but broadcast. Yes. <laughs> Much bigger than the pod. Uh, and you were frozen. Totally frozen. And what was going through your head right at that moment when you were frozen? Were you like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my job? So what happens in panic is, so think all of us have had moments of anxiety. What happens in a moment of anxiety is the voice in your head ramps up. You're just kind of worried about the future and you're making these little movies in your head about uh, all the horrible things that are going to happen and uh, th- what happens in panic is that goes on steroids. It just speeds up. It's like, kind of like what they do to the voices of the chipmunks in the in the animated cartoons. It just gets really fast. And so I was thinking about uh, everybody's seeing this. You're done. You're cooked. Your career's over. You're going to get fired. You get, get yourself out of this. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And this and was during the broadcast. This is all in the middle of, <laughs> like a, you know. Like one second time yes time <laughs> yes of course the mind moves very fast and the body can react very quickly and of course there is this feedback loop between the thinking and your physiological reaction because the more you have these anxious panicked thoughts the more violent your body's reaction is the more violent your body's reaction is the crazier your mind is and that's where i just i ended up having to quit in the middle and just toss it back to the main hosts of the show how did you do that I just kind of squeaked out, uh, that does it for news, back to you, uh, Charlie and Diane. And were were they surprised? Yes. So, and again, you describe all this in the book, 10% Happier, but it's good to, I want to, I want. Oh, I'm happy to duplicate whatever. (laughs) I mean, you're not going to, there's no sensitivity on my end there. Um, The the people in in the room, in the studio, were super surprised. Charlie Gibson, who was the host of the show at the time, he and Diane Sawyer, bolted out of his chair, ran over to me, and, and uh, you know, just to see what was wrong. The interesting thing is if you watch the clip on the internet, uh, I often hear from people, you know, that it didn't look that bad if you look at the clip, because it's on YouTube. Um, I think that's true. I mean, I actually hid it quite well, but that was because I had the option to toss it back to the hosts of the show. Right, like Unlike, if you didn't have that option, what I, would, would happen? Flop sweat, teratic outburst, ripping the mic off and running away. It would have been more like the movie Broadcast News uh, right. where James Brooks just falls apart because he didn't have any means of egress. He didn't have any way to get out of the situation. I did. Uh, so it, it, it allowed me to survive in some ways but because I was able to, I kind of lied at the time and didn't, t- I knew I had a panic attack, but I didn't tell anybody. I, I was like, oh, I don't know what happened. It was a whatever. I just kind of blustered my way through it. 
and was able to survive. But if if it One, had... once the segment was over, did the panic go away? So it was totally based on you doing the segment. Yes, it was the red light was on, and I knew I was on, and uh, and I lost it. You know, red light a... being such a metaphor for like every type of panic you know one could have, and you were like staring at the red light. <laughs> I mean, live television is like panic central. Think about it. You that red light is on. It's this surreal feeling. You know. Millions of people are watching you, but you can't see them. So you're in this little studio, and the only indication that a mil- mil- all these eyeballs are on you is this red light. And so, if you are um, prone to panic, it's a great atmosphere to be in. Let me let me ask you this: What, in your view, I mean, I feel sort of like everybody goes through, or not everybody, that's that's too broad, but like many people, including myself at different moments, have gone through kind of this slow motion panic attack where it's just kind of just the wear and tear and stress of daily living or something bad happens to you, like you lose a job or get a divorce or whatever. Just that kind of like wear and tear every day picks, picks at you and tears you apart. What would you say is kind of the difference um, conceptually between that and like this very fast one that you had? Was it, was that sort of the outcome of a, a long drawn out kind of panic that was happening in your life or was it physiological? With the, with the caveat that I'm not a medical expert, I think the difference between what you're describing and panic is the difference between anxiety and panic. So anxiety is generally sort of, uh, and it can be comorbid with depression. So anxiety and depression are often uh, occur, co- co-occur. Um, and it's just this feeling of being down, being very worried and anxious about the future. Um, panic is when it escalates to a point where you release enough adrenaline that you have the fight or flight response, mm. which we evolved um, in order to effectively face down, you know, like a saber-toothed tiger. So, so, so you, at that moment, it was like the equivalent of somebody 10,000 years ago facing down a tiger. Yes, yes. And we, we all have, um, we all have sort of lower grade, well, for, first of all, many of us have panic, real panic, but we all have sort of lower grade, um, manifestations of that in traffic, you know, when you, somebody cuts you online on star, in Starbucks, uh, whatever, all when you're meeting with your boss. And it, it, it is an inappropriate usage of this ancient sort of evolutionary um, aspect to our physio- physiology. Um, but to, to answer your, the other question, uh, which is, I think, trying to get at you, you asked me sort of what what caused the panic attacks or yeah what like was what was happening and like was there something deeper happening in your life yeah, that yes. you know kind of push pushed you over the edge uh in a high stake situation yeah well the one word answer is cocaine um so the, the but the more complicated answer is that i had arrived at abc news when i was 28 and really super insecure and green about uh, and insecure about my my lack of experience and working with these big names like Diane Sawyer and Barbara Walters and Peter Jennings. And um, after 9-11, I, uh, well, first of all, I should say that my response to my insecurity was to become a workaholic, to really just sort of channel my anxiety. My uh, Jewish father has this expression, the price of security is insecurity. So I really embraced that. I I was just on this constant thought loop of how good was my last story? How good my next story going to be? Who's getting a story that I want? What's my relationship with the bosses right now? Blah, 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 blah. And then 9-11 happened not long after I got there, and I volunteered to go cover whatever happened next and ended up spending many years in war zones. And uh, I, for, I had never really thought, I was kind of 
blinded by both ambition and idealism. I, I really thought the work was very important, and I also really wanted to be successful, and this was a way to be successful. We were at war, and that was a, a big story. And uh, so I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Israel and the West Bank and Gaza, and I made six or seven trips to Iraq. And in 2003, I came home from Iraq, and I got depressed. And uh, I didn't even really know I was depressed, uh, but I, I was exhibiting what I now know to be some of the you know, signature symptoms. I was having trouble getting out of bed. I felt like I had a low-grade fever all the time. And then I did this really dumb thing, which is I started using cocaine and ecstasy as a sort of self-medication. I was 32, and I had never used hard drugs before. I'd smoked a little weed or whatever, but uh, this it was the thing that made me feel better. And it was so, so that definitely this was some sort of self. You were self medicating totally. without realizing it on yes. on a depression that you didn't realize yes. off of a post traumatic stress that you probably didn't realize yes. from the war situations. Yes. But like, what happened in the war situations? Do you think that really sort of like what what was the connection between coming back from Iraq and and you slipping into the first depression? So I actually think you used the term post traumatic stress, and I said yes, but that it is, that was a little bit inaccurate on my part. It wasn't so much that I had post-traumatic stress or that I was traumatized by what I saw, although I did see a lot of traumatic things and lost some friends, and for sure there was a lot of disturbing material. I think the real truth is that I liked it, that it is very exciting. So you had this kind of adrenaline rush or exhilaration maybe similar to like you know, again, it's not exactly similar. I don't want to make the connection, but maybe you felt you could reclaim it with ecstasy or cocaine. That's exactly right. It was like a synthetic squirt mm-hmm. of adrenaline that I was getting from the drugs. But but though that's like so highly intense in the brain that that's going to trigger all sorts of other things. Well, what it did was artificially raise the level of adrenaline in my brain, mm-hmm. and that is what primed me to have the panic attack. Mm-hmm. So when I was on the air, I wasn't using cocaine. I hadn't used it in a couple of weeks, as a matter of fact. But I had been using drugs for a couple of years um, with significant, with sufficient frequency that it artificially raised the level of adrenaline. And for somebody who was already a little bit nervous anyway, a little bit sort of, or I like this expression, uh, for a JIA, uh, Jew in agony, you know, <laughs> you know, basic sort of like at baseline, uh, anxious little guy. Um, As opposed to MIA, missing in action yes, for exactly. everybody else. We're just Jews in agony. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I, I, I think what I know from my doctor that what what happened was the combination of being baseline, a little bit nervous, and also having this um, huge added dose of adrenaline in my, you know, uh, in my brain, that's what happened that morning. And so I, I want to um, get into the into the book, but uh, uh, and then the app, but I want to ask also, like, when you finally felt ready to start being revealing about this, and particularly with your with your book, uh, were you afraid at all of uh, the reaction of your bosses and peers and, and so on, and audience also? Yeah, I was totally freaked out. I mean, really freaked out. Now, I mean, I talk about it all the time, but I uh, did a lot of hand-wringing over many years about whether to admit this and uh, what it was going to do to my career. And a a couple of weeks, I sort of came to peace with it. And a couple of weeks before the book came out, I got an email from my mom. 
begging me not to publish the book. At this point, the book was printed and sitting in warehouses. And not only that, though, also, because, I, I mean, if you, you can see in the last chapter of the book, you also got a promotion right before the book came out. Yes. So were you afraid of Jeopardy? And then maybe your mom was also afraid of, uh, I'm putting myself in her shoes, but, like, uh, maybe she was afraid you were going to jeopardize this forward motion in your career. Well, subsequent to publishing the book, and so after after this chapter with my mom, I had my uh, my own first baby. And so, yeah, I mean, I think my mom, I'm not criticizing my mom here. I think that it was a natural reaction of a parent to not want to see their kid throw themselves off a cliff. Right. And luckily for me, I was freaked out when that email came in. And I actually thought about not publishing the book. I mean, I, re- I was starting to think that, you know, what, this may be too big, a mis- uh, too big a risk. I'm not willing to do it. Four years of work, the books are printed, I'm ready to go, and I was thinking about publishing it. I serendipitously had two meetings on the books that day, one with Diane Sawyer and one with the president of ABC News, a guy named Ben Sherwood, who's actually now the head of all of ABC. And I told them what I, this email from my mom, and their response was, they both said the same thing, which was, we love your mom, she's really smart, she's being a mom, but she's wrong. You're going to be fine, we've got your back. And this is a good thing you're doing for yourself and for the world. I think I think that's important. They they said that to you. I, I don't think every boss is that friendly. But I also I also think it's it's those things that make you afraid to reveal about yourself. That's going to be always the best writing and have the most impact because then people are going to realize, okay, we're all kind of playing in the same game, and uh, it's it's only by kind of leveling the playing field that you can really have your message resonate with people, which obviously it's it's done. Yeah, I think that's actually absolutely right, and I, something that I didn't really understand before I wrote the book, um, that... Like, you can't write from a pedestal, because no, that doesn't work. No, you can't. Work, well, so. I mean, some people do. A lot of people in the self-help wor- world sort of present themselves as perfected and blah, 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 but I don't think that... I don't... While they may sell a lot of books, I don't think they're having that the amount of impact they could if, if they, you know, I think the real way in is to be, to share the vulnerability that is part of the human condition and then to share from there what you did to address it. I, I totally agree. It's, it's self-help. It's about yourself first, I think, Correct. before you can help other selves. So, and you have to, you have to sort of, people say, you know, like, I'm just going to make up something like 10 ways to be a better leader. Well, in order for you to come up with that, you've had to have been at some point an incompetent and horrible leader <laughs> yes. and then learn the hard way, like, like the yeah. rest of the universe, yeah. how to be better. So yeah. tell, tell me your story first. Your credentials are not what, what are the great things about you. The t- credentials are actually the horrible things yes. that you had to overcome. Yes. So that's what I want to hear. But nobody, you're right. Out of that 11 billion industry, nobody or very few people say that. And, and some books do sell copies, but not that many. That's why it's 11 billion a year and just constantly churns over and over because pe- there are no good books out, or very few good books out there. So, so okay. So let's, in the book, what, what you know, just to kind of almost fast forward a little because I want to get to your app as well. You talk a lot about meditation and how meditation helped um, you, you kind of calm the, the seas. And how did you, were you meditating before? How did you kind of get to, to meditation? So, uh, <laughs> Uh, let me just say outright, because I feel like as soon as you bring that word up, some high percentage of your listeners are like, all right, I'm done with this podcast. Meditation is bullshit. Um, or I don't want to do it or whatever. Yeah, which, well, which... I'll, I'll tell you my favorite phrase for meditation is, is sometimes mad attention, where every, people just sit and they just, just the constant churn continues to happen. But then they feel like, oh, I did my 15 minutes of sitting today, <laughs> even though it was still like, you know, they're still just as anxious. And I, I think people misuse both the word and the philosophy and the ideas and so on. Yes, well, th- that's true. Uh, uh, 
for, for sure, but it is also true that a lot of people just reflexively reject it. And I was one of those people. And the, the story of the book is really the story of me coming to terms with this, uh, coming to terms with the fact that meditation is not what I thought it was. I mean, I was under the assumption that it was only for freaks and hippies and weirdos and people who were really into, you know, John Tesh and, and uh, Cat Stevens and whatever. As it turns out, though, it's very simple. It's secular and scientifically validated. There's just been an enormous amount of science that shows that it lowers your blood pressure, boosts your immune system, rewires key parts of your brain. And that's why it's now taking off in corporations, Google, Twitter, Aetna, General Mills. Um, in what way? Like, how does Google use <clears throat> meditation? I don't know. They offer it to their employees. They yeah. offer classes. ABC News now does it. We so, basically have a daily, uh, we have a meditation room at ABC News. It's totally voluntary. You can come and do a daily meditation. We also bring teachers in to teach. Uh, again, totally voluntary, but this is now, that model is being used at major corporations all over the country. It's also being done in locker rooms, like the, the Seattle Seahawks have a meditation coach, hmm. New York Knicks, who I, yes, they do suck, uh, but they do, they're doing meditation. Phil Jackson, who's the GM, has a history of using it with the Bulls and the Lakers, so I mean, to great effect. Novak Djokovic um, meditates, uh, he did quite well in Wimbledon not too long ago. Uh, so it's really taking off. And uh, so, I, but I, I, this is one of the first times in my life where I was actually ahead of the curve. I started doing it like six years ago, which was many years after the, the panic attack. But the panic attack kind of set me off on this journey through religion and self-help and all this other stuff. And it ultimately landed me on meditation. Well, why did it set you off on this journey? Because did like, so you totally connected it with the drug use and the events in your past and you were able to say, okay, I need to turn, take a different fork in the road. It was kind of multifactorial. So I had the panic attack. I realized it was drugs uh, and I started to see a shrink. So that was a big thing. So going to see the shrink, which was really helpful. Um, not only in terms of like getting me off drugs and, uh, and staying off drugs, but also in terms of just getting into the layers of, you know, calcified bullshit uh, in my own mind. Um, but then what happened was my boss, Peter Jennings, assigned me to cover faith and spirituality for ABC News. Hmm. So then I sort of involuntarily found myself in, you know, mosques and megachurches and Mormon temples and was exposed to all of this, you know, a lot of stuff that the, the sort of the dogma and metaphysics I wasn't really into, but I, I really saw clearly that there was a value to having a worldview that transcends your own narrow interests. And, and I, I just had a vague, squishy sense that there was something important about that. And then I stumbled upon uh, a guy named Eckhart Tolle, who's a big oh, yeah. self-help guru. And I thought he was full of shit at first. Uh, but then he was the first person who actually uh, I heard ever clearly explicate the notion of having a voice in the head. Um, that we all have this voice in our head, that we, this voice that chases you out of bed in the morning and is yammering at you all day long and has you constantly wanting stuff, not wanting stuff, comparing yourself to other people, judging other people, thinking about the past or thinking about the future to the detriment of whatever's happening right now. I have a friend named Sam Harris. We're not related, but um, he writes books about meditation. He, oh, yeah, he's been on my oh, podcast as well. Okay, so Sam's very, a great guy. guy. And he has this joke he talks about when he thinks about the voice in his head, he feels like he's been hijacked by the most boring person alive who just says the same shit over and over, most of it negative, all of it self-referential. And Tolley's argument, after I got through the thicket of nonsense in the beginning of his book, but his basic argument is that if, if you're unaware of this nonstop conversation you're having with yourself, it controls you. It's why you're eating when you're not hungry or you're 
checking your email in the middle of a conversation with your kid or you're losing your temper in a work situation when it's strategically unwise. And when I read that, that was the sort of central pivot moment for me of, oh, the A, this is just intuitively true. And B, this is why, uh, this is what led to the the most embarrassing moment of my life. The the events that led up to that panic attack, panic attack were a case study in mindlessness. Going to wars without thinking about the consequences, um, getting depressed, not knowing it, and then blindly self-medicating. And so the problem was totally, in my view, didn't have any actionable practical advice for dealing with a voice in the head. I actually went and interviewed him and asked him, and he seemed unwilling or unable to really give me something practical. But that sort of ultimately, after some thrashing around through that, I uh, I found Buddhism and meditation. And when I talk, talk about Buddhism, I talk about it in a very secular sense. Well, it's interesting you say secular. Like, have you ever read uh, Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist by I, Stephen Batchelor? I just had lunch with him the other day. I'm a massive fan of Yeah, him. no, that's a great book because he's so knowledgeable about the actual uh, history of Buddha. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, the, the, like, he's gone through and really tried to figure out what's the actual historical Buddha as opposed to what's been made up about him afterwards. And there's not really the kind of almost Western notion of enlightenment and all that kind of stuff. It's just simply what you're saying is notice reactions and try not to react too much to them. Correct. <laughs> so, the, the Buddha, Stephen Batchelor's one of my favorite writers and one of my favorite humans. He just, he he is, I am a Buddhist in the spirit of Stephen Batchelor, which is that the Buddha was a dude 2,600 years ago who's incredibly smart. Who, Cre- incredibly diplomatic, too, because he was living, like, in yes. basic, essentially in the middle of a war zone yes. where his family was one of the countries. Correct, so. and he had to negotiate among all these kings and all these rich people who supported his uh, community of monks and nuns, and he was, at least if you agree with Stephen's reading of the history, not in not super into metaphysical claims, and to the extent that he was making claims about like karma or enlightenment, he explicitly said, take it or leave it. Check it out for yourself. And the bottom line is what he was offering was just a technique, at least for beginners, and this is what's important for guys like me and you, and I think most of the people listening, was a technique that gives that that sort of teases out of your own mind this innate capacity we all have, which is called mindfulness, which is the ability to non-judgmentally watch the contents of your own consciousness to see what's happening in your own mind right now without necessarily taking the bait and acting on it. So you know, when things happen to you, when somebody cuts you off in traffic, when uh, somebody presents you with a, ca- uh, a tray of uh, delicious cookies, uh, you are able to to see the urge to lose your temper or to uh, lose your mind with the cookies and not uh, some percentage of the time not get carried away by it. And that's an incredibly powerful thing. I, I think that is powerful because when people talk about meditation, they often refer to it as a practice. And But people forget that the word practice means you're practicing for something else. And so yeah. the something else is basically the other 23 hours in the day. Correct. When Correct. It's, you're practicing for that moment when someone steals your cookie. Yes. And you start and you have that kind of, you, you become, you're, you're essentially practicing becoming aware of that angry voice that comes up that starts to react. And then you can say, look, it's not a big deal. And then you, you calm down again. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 that's exactly right. And the, the, what it teaches you how to do is to, to respond wisely to things instead of reacting blindly. We're like puppets on a string, led around by the sort of, uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the, the evil-intentioned uh, uh, puppeteer of ego. And we're, we're just reacting to things blindly all the time. 
just eating this because we just saw this advertising, losing, uh, losing our temper because somebody says something that presses our buttons. We have no, we have no distance from this voice in our head. It's, it's it, what meditation does. It's a little bit like pressing the picture in picture button on your TV, but the story that's taken up the whole frame can be seen with some perspective. And yes, it is a practice for the rest. You, you don't do it for the sake of doing it. Although, so, which I think is the main mistake. Many, I don't want to say mistake. That's a harsh word, but a lot of people think, okay, or particularly when they're starting looking into it, they think, okay, this one hour is when I'm going to get happy and, for, you know, I'm going to achieve some sort of goal, like, I don't know whether they call it enlightenment or whatever, um, when there's really no goal to it. It's just, again, like, just getting better at handling these reactions that happen throughout the day. It's, yeah, it's totally a practice. Yes, it's, that's exactly right. I mean, you can, it's a not bad analogy is physical exercise because we we exercise not for the sake of doing it, although it can be enjoyable. For me, it usually sucks. But I hate but, it. So, I mean, I, I hate it too. I do it because I'm a narcissist and I work on television, so I have to do it. But, um, but I think the real reason to do it is because it, for me, it lowers... Um, the likelihood of depression. I feel better. Um, I can eat what I want. Um, it really, the value of exercise is the time when I'm not exercising. And this is, it's not a bad analogy for meditation. You know, but, you're, you're but practicing that's interesting for too, something else. Because there's many things that could potentially lower those adrenaline levels, that, you know, or lower the, those anxieties and so on. Meditation is one. Exercise has been known to have similar effects to antidepressants. Even things like, you know, game playing, um, where you're interacting with others in a different way, or um, like, like for instance, I often have business meetings over ping pong, just because <laughs> that gets people out of the office, and then you're interacting, there's a lot of things communicating in a game, as opposed to just like talking. Uh, and so, so, but all these things like make you happier, meditation being one of them. I, I wonder how you feel about meditation versus some of these other things like exercise or eating well or spending time with friends and so on. First of all, I love the ping pong thing. Second of all, absolutely. Just try it, that with the head of ABC sometime. I, I should. <laughs> I should. I, I, I might. I might get some promotions that I want. Um, uh, although the head of ABC is actually pretty cool. Um, the the uh, when it comes to happiness, I'm a maximalist. I don't. Th I'm not a purist about meditation. I don't think it's the only lever you pull. Mm -hmm. I think it's. Uh, I think it's. It goes along with having good relationships in your life, exercising, sleeping well, eating uh, eating right. Gameplay, uh, you know, all all the things that we know, all the things that are already in the sort of pantheon of no brainers uh, when it comes to feeling and uh, feeling better. I think meditation too long has been left out of that because we view it as either flaky or impossible. We should talk about that because a lot of people do think it's impossible. And, and by the way, I, uh, I thought you did handle that very well in the last chapter of your book um, where you kind of raise the all of the objections and kind of deal with them one at a time. But, but, well, well, uh, uh, thank you. Um, so the book is mostly uh, it's a it's a it's a narrative. But in the the last chapter of the book, I do give instructions, and I start the instructions by l raising what I think are the three biggest objections that people have to meditation, and then systematically knocking them down. But the the biggest objection, and this is I think emerging as uh, as truly the biggest objection, because as meditation's PR problem is eroded through sort of the, the traditional view of meditation, the stereotypical view of meditation as only being for hippies and weirdos, really is starting to go away because of the science and because of the broader uh, uh, adaptation of it by um, sort of quote-unquote normal people. So what's what I think is emerging instead as the objection uh, is the idea that I can't do it. Um, I hear this all the time from people. 
I get it. Meditation is good for you, but my mind, you don't understand. My mind is too busy. I can't do this. And I call this the fallacy of uniqueness. People think that their mind is um, somehow uniquely busy. And the good news and the bad news is you're not special. Welcome to the human condition. All of our minds are like this. We wouldn't need meditation. Uh, and, so, and, and, and the further good news is that the point of meditation is not to clear the mind. People think I have to sit and stop thinking. It's impossible unless you're enlightened or dead. Uh, the point of meditation is to simply sit and focus the mind for a few nano, just a few nanoseconds at a time uh, and then get lost and then start again and get lost and start again and get lost and start again. And that is the bicep curl for the brain, which shows up on the brain scans. And I, I think that's an, um, the most important point, really, because I think many people try meditation and then feel like they've quote unquote failed. Yes. So, or not even the quotes, they just, they feel like they failed. Yes. Because, oh no, I, my brain kept interrupting. I wasn't able to like, you know, like you say, clear the brain. Reach nirvana. Right, exactly. And, uh, but that, that really is the whole point. And you, and another objection you, you brought up was people say, oh, it's so boring. But then you suggest, I thought it was very powerful. You suggest explore where that boredom is coming from. Like think, like analyze that boredom. Cause that's also part of the practice is analyzing where these things are coming up out of. Yeah, it doesn't even so much have to be, the, here's the thing, the further you get into meditation, you become a little bit annoying because you get persnickety <laughs> about language. So I'm going to, I'm going to slightly okay, change the, persnick uh, away. I persnick away. <laughs> you don't have to analyze it. You just have to feel it. So mm -hmm. like you're, you're sitting there trying to focus on your, I should step back for a second and just say that the kind of, the type of meditation that I do is called mindfulness meditation. And, and, uh, it's the type of meditation that has been studied the most in the labs and basically involves feeling the sensations of your breath coming in and going out. And then every time you get lost, you start over. And so that can be incredibly boring. But then the move when you're overcome by boredom is to be like, all right, what is boredom like? What does this feel like? Where does it matter? Where am I feeling at my body? What's it like? What's the taste of it in my mind? And that is curiosity. And that is, that's a judo move right there. And, and, and what meditation is, what mindfulness is, is a series of these little internal judo moves where you're co-opting whatever's coming up in the mind. Am I, having a, am I having a blast of anger right now? Well, what is that like? What is that like? And then what's the value of that? When the blast of anger happens in your real life or the wave of dull, deadening boredom comes over you in the middle of a conversation with another human being, what is that like in real life? And can you not get carried away by it so that you don't do something that you later regret. Right. So, so it's interesting because you, I've never heard the phrase curiosity used with meditation, but it's a really great way to put it that, uh, uh essentially you're kind of becoming a, a scientist of your own inner reactions and being curious in that exact same way. Like what's happening that's making me think this way, as opposed to saying, and that distance your distances yourself a little bit from the events that are happening. So a, a scientist is not his experiment, and just the same way a human is not their reactions and emotions to things, those are separate, and it's good to kind of almost examine them in this curious way. So um, inadvertently, perhaps, you are using a lot of Buddhist language. You know, the Buddha referred to himself as a, presented himself as a physician, not as a religious leader. I didn't know that. As a, as a physician, as a guy who was helping people with their mental suffering. Um, the suffering inherent in being alive. Um, uh, and curiosity, he had a, the Buddha had a list of sort of factors of enlightenment. You can ignore the term enlightenment if you want, but just sort of factors of good meditation, let's say. And But I think enlightenment he used in the same way 
that uh, I, I don't know a modern example. There are many modern examples, but I think he was just trying to speak a language that everybody would understand at and the time. At, at that yes, time, yes. twenty six hundred years yes. ago in India, which was you know had many kind of religions and gods and so on that were kind of consolidating together almost into mm -hmm. Hinduism. He was just trying to basically speak that language for people to understand what he was Co saying. Yes. If you take out enlightenment and replace it with, you know... Lowered know, reactivity. Yeah, then you've got the same set of rules, yeah. the same four noble truths. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the way Bachelor talks about it is instead of enlightenment, he uses the term lowered reactivity, which mm -hmm. is... Which is, you know, mindfulness in action. But anyway, on the second, fa I, I could be getting this wrong, but the second factor on the list, this, the list of seven things that go into sort of uh, achieving enlightenment, or or you might want to just say have, having good meditation, is interest, which is another way of saying curiosity. And curiosity is a huge part of meditation because it's not just this grim march of trying to stay focused on the breath. It's like what happens in the mind and then what is that like so anger is going to come up fear joy sometimes will come up discomfort and what is that like what is the, how does the mind re respond how does the body respond to that and and that's a very interesting thing by the way this is your actual life which most of us are sleepwalking through and, and it's you know, an opportunity to see what your life is about much of it can be painful though like what if you know what if every time you sit down to meditate your mind instantly goes to to the most painful things in your life as opposed to the normal habit of avoiding those painful things like which often happens in meditation like people meditate and they start to cry because it's just every bad thing that's ever happened to them starts to they start to think about so, you know it's sometimes it's very unpleasant yes of course of course um uh i think Buyer beware. I mean, just the same way when you exercise, there's a possibility of injury or it's gonna you're going to be sore um, in a good way. Uh, you know, that th this is this is not a consequence-free... It's something you should do, but you should go into it with your eyes open that you can... that tough stuff may come up. But I would argue, uh, just based on my own personal experience, not as a some some sort of expert from uh, pronouncing from the mountaintop, but from my own personal experience, that this is a healthy way to deal with this stuff that we're compartmentalizing or squashing in other ways. Um, that to have it come up in the in the safe zone of uh, uh, sitting on a cushion or in a chair or whatever when meditating and trying to view all of this stuff with some non-judgmental remove might take the teeth out of it. And might, you might say that, oh, this thing that's been kind of in the corners of my consciousness that I've been kind of trying to deny or keep down, it's not that big of a deal. Actually, if I bring it into the sunlight of uh, consciousness and examine it, it, maybe it's not that big of a deal. Well, it's interesting because there's, there's, it's not quite an analogy, but something that happens often in meditation to people is, of course, you're sitting and you're not moving and you get an itch somewhere. Yeah. And so the, the you can either scratch the itch or sometimes the guidance is to just... Um, notice it, and then suddenly the itch goes away once you start to notice it. And it's the same thing with these kind of negative emotions that can come up, or positive emotions, yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. But... Here's the thing, here's the undeniable truth about whatever you notice in meditation, and it's true in all of life, it's going to change. One way or the other, everything's going to change. 
this building we're gonna we're sitting in right now will fall down someday. You and I will undoubtedly die, and our bodies will fall apart. Well, Everything statistically, I won't. By the way, because <laughs> never in the thirty six thousand days or whatever I've been alive, or twenty thousand days I've been alive, have I died once. So I'm just going on statistics alone here. It's very unlikely I'm gonna I die. Li- I like the way you crunch the numbers. It's great. Uh, I'm a statistics magician. <laughs> um, so you will notice that everything changes, and and the itch. Yeah, I like that instruction. If you get an itch in meditation, I think notice it. What does it actually? What does that itch actually feel like? What is it? How, what? How does your mind and body react when you resist the reflexive urge to just go scratch it? And maybe the itch will get worse, but ultimately it will go away. It may be overtaken by something else you don't like, uh, or maybe it'll be. Maybe you'll notice the actual moment it subsides, and there'll be this like really interesting. Uh, moment of uh, relief, but then that relief will be will also change. Everything will change. So, so I imagine after the book came out and it was so popular that um, so people kind of went from your story to what you did and probably asked you a lot of questions because then now you've recently come out with an app to yeah. help people meditate. So it's the ten percent happier app and app. the iTunes Store and on you know where where would you get it on uh, on the the Google phones like the. Yeah, Google if you, Play Store. <clears throat> we're a couple months away from having a Android version, but you can get it in. Um, if you go to ten percent happier dot com, you can get it right mm-hmm. there and just download it. We, which is obviously just a stopgap measure, and we we will have something for Android soon. We're just a little percent startup. spelled out. Uh, uh, yes, but I think you can get it. I think you. I think we have a URL that allows you to get there, no matter how oh, okay. you type it in. Um, but just to pick up on what you're saying before, after I wrote the book, I got this one criticism, I got lots of criticisms, but one criticism that really resonated with me, which is that I got people excited about meditation, and aside from the instructions in the back of the book, I didn't really do much to help them get up and running. And I I was under the impression, like, because I started meditating, I just read a few books and just started doing it. But um, most people... And frankly, my beginning meditation practice would have been much better if I had if I had had this app. Um, most people really, it's useful to have guided meditations and to have access to somebody who you can ask questions of. And so we've designed the app so that every day you get a little video from me talking to a meditation teacher, which you can watch or not watch. And then you get a little guided meditation from the best, one of the best meditation teachers on earth because we've brought together really, really great teachers. And then the other thing we do is we give you a coach, somebody you can text with or email with, because when people start meditating, they have a million questions. Is that could that be too? Um, could that make your app not as scalable as you would like it to be? Because there's only so many texts that the guy can respond so to. So we we've we're, we've got these back end tools that allow one coach to talk to you know thousands of people mm-hmm. because it's, as it turns out, everybody has the same question. Yes, uh, but if you have personalized questions or if you have a really really deep question. Um, first of all, if you have personalized questions, you'll get them answered. And second, um, if you have a really deep question that the coach can't answer, we've got, you know, deeply, deeply trained meditation teachers standing by to answer them. Um, so we've put a lot of thought into building the the right backend tools so that we can treat, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, not treat, uh, serve a lot of people at the same time. And we'll just be adding more as the, you know, right at the beginning of this thing right now. And as we scale, we'll just be adding more coaches. And and there are, you know, we're not the only people doing this 
We're the only people doing it in meditation, but there are other companies in the fitness space that do do a lot of coaching. And so, and it's been shown to be very, very effective. It, when, when you feel like you're being held accountable, you're more likely to do it. Um, and so what I want to do is to build a tool that is super sticky because what is my goal? My, my, one of my main missions in life is to help, is to get people over the hump so that they start meditating and then inspired to continue meditating. And because I think this will make a huge difference in people's lives. It has in mine and everybody I know who started to meditate. You know, I don't know. I, I put out a challenge when I first wrote the book. Try meditation for a couple of weeks. And if you think it's bullshit, send me a note on Twitter and tell me I'm a moron. Now, on Twitter all the time, people tell me I'm a moron, but not because of that. Not once. And so I don't know anybody who's really done it and said this is, is lacks utility. Well, it's interesting because I imagine the effects are so small initially. Um, I mean, even over time, it's not like your life changes in one day mm -hmm. from, from doing it. Um, how do how do people build a habit on something where they know there's potentially good things that can happen in the long run, but in the short run they're not really seeing any difference? It's a, it's a great question. Um, on a, in, a, in some ways, it's not a bad analogy with exercise again because you know to get in shape takes a while. Um, uh, but the thing that exercise has that meditation doesn't is this endorphin rush. You, know, you really feel good after a good session in a way that meditation, sometimes you feel good, sometimes you feel bad. The point isn't to feel a certain way. The point is just to feel whatever you feel clearly so that during the rest of your life, when emotions and urges and thoughts come up, you can see them clearly and respond wisely instead of reacting blindly. Um, so I think you need to sort of have a commitment to do it for a few weeks for a couple of minutes a day. And I think after a few weeks, you will see two big benefits, three big benefits that I started to see very quickly. And um, the three are one, just an, a greater sense of calm in your life. Again, not like perfect imperturbability, just a just an extra added measure of calm that you will get after three or four or five weeks of five to 10 minutes a day of meditation. This is just what happened for me. I won't guarantee it, but generally speaking, I think this is a safe assertion. The second one is focus. We live in an environment where we're just pelted by texts and tweets and status updates and James Altucher podcasts and books. And don't don't stop focusing on those, <laughs> but uh, yes. Uh, and, and, and it's very hard to stay on task. And the daily exercise of sitting and trying to focus on one thing, your breath, getting lost, starting over, getting lost, starting over, that exercise, that bicep curl for the brain is really good for staying on task. And I think that you will slowly start to see that you get better at that. Not perfect, but that it starts to improve. And then the third thing, the biggest thing is mindfulness, that you will start to have a different relationship to your urges and impulses and desires and thoughts. And again, it will creep up on you. I started to notice there was a difference when a couple of weeks into meditation, I would overhear my wife at parties telling people, oh yeah, he's less of an asshole. And I, you know, that it was really other people that noticed first. Um, so there's a certain amount of faith and I don't use that term, uh, in the religious sense, but I, I mean it more in a sense of trust that, that you need to have. And the faith, I think you can get from hearing the stories of people like me, people who are like, like you, you know, that don't wear robes are busy, secular people, or not that it's so important to be secular. I mean, there are a lot of religious people who meditate too, and I don't have any problem with religion at all, but busy 
active people in the world who meditate and find that it's useful. And then also look at the science. Um, and so I think you need a little bit of faith to keep you going, and but you will start to see results eventually. And nobody continues to meditate because they feel like, oh, my prefrontal cortex might be changing. You continue to meditate because you're less of an asshole to yourself and others. And that's a huge, huge value add. And I think it has impacts in your personal life and in your professional life that are just undeniable. And so do you feel, I mean, now since you've started this and obviously then you wrote the book, but let's even say since the book has come out and it's gotten a lot of attention, I, I, I hate to ask such a uh, sort of sort of the basic question, but do you feel 10% happier? No, no. A, don't be sheepish about that at all. B, the answer is yes. And I would say that the 10% First of all, 10% is a joke, right? So you can't quantify happiness. Right. I came up with it as like a bullshit answer to a friend of mine who was asking, because when I started to meditate, this was in 2009, I think, before it got cool. And a lot of my colleagues were like, what's the matter with you? And one day, I don't know, it popped out of my mouth. A friend was saying, well, why are you meditating? What's the deal with you? And I said, eh, you know, it makes me 10% happier. And so... I could see the look on her face transform from scorn to like vague interest uh, because it just sounded so reasonable. So I, I really stuck with that as a shtick. So it's true as far as it goes, right? But I, I would say if we're gonna just, if we're, if we're gonna take it at face value, that the 10% compounds annually because this is a skill, meditation and mindfulness, this is a skill right. and you get better at it and the, it shows up in your life. You can think about it almost sort of, I've, I'm shitty at math, but you, you can think about it a little bit like a graph. Um, uh, um, the, is this the x-axis? Uh, mm -hmm. So the x-axis, which runs um, horizontally, is uh, there's a term in, in psychology that we all have like a happiness set point. And that good things happen, bad things happen. We tend to return to this x-axis, wherever it is. So, for, so if you think that if you're again, if you can visualize the x-axis, good things happen, and we zoom above the x-axis, right? On, um, and we're happy. And then bad things happen, and we dive below the x-axis. We dive below our set point. We tend to revert. Good things happen, bad things happen. We tend to revert to our set point. So for me, what's happened, and I find this continuously uh, supported over time, is that good things happen in my life. Like we have a baby, and um, the top of the curve gets much higher and much more sustained because I'm doing less of the old thing I used to do, which is, what's next? Or, you know, what other, what other things do I need to worry about? I'm actually enjoying what's happening right now. Not perfectly and not, not like um, uninterruptedly, but I'm better than I used to be. And then on the bottom end of the curve, bad things happen to me. Uh, I don't get a story I want or um, uh, some, you know, some book project I'm thinking about. Maybe it's not going to work out or I get a nasty email. And, I'm, and the shallow end of, I mean, the, the, the sort of lower, the, the below the x-axis part of this graph gets shallower because I'm engaging in less useless rumination. And then simultaneously, the x-axis goes up, goes north, because I think overall my set point has changed. And it's I, a long I, way of saying, yes, I'm tempted to have well, well, I think also part of it is the skill, not of just not reacting to things, but but I think it's also important to know what not to react to. Like some things you do want to react to. Yeah. Like if a car is coming at you, you have to react yes. and like jump out of the way. But you have to know... You get you get better at kind of understanding what was an irrational reaction. I Absol think is is more pro probably a concise way to put it. Yeah, and the, the proposition here is not that you should be rendered into a lifeless, non judgmental 
blob. The, the proposition is that you should learn how to respond wisely instead of reacting blindly. And sometimes responding wisely means you got to say something tough to somebody or you, uh, you know, you might even have to raise your voice. Um, or you need to jump out of the way or you whatever whatever it is this is not about being stupid or uh being a palooka this is about being smart so so okay so the book's 10 percent happier the app is 10 percent happier yeah. and you can find it in the itunes store now when's it gonna be available on android i'm guessing six months so okay. um but you can as an interim thing get it at 10 percent happier.com and let me also say that um this may or may not be a wise business move, but you, you can start for free. And not only can you start for free, you, if you download the app and, uh, and and start using it, you'll get a coach and you'll get uh, a week or so of free meditation. And at that point, you you will know how to meditate. You could quit and not pay us a dime. And, and you will have gotten the basics and you will be up and running. At the, however, if you want to keep going, if you want to keep access to your coach, if you really like our teachers and our courses and all that stuff, you can uh, pay 10 bucks or whatever, and you can get a, a subscription service and get access to all the content in perpetuity. Hmm. And how's it going so far? We just started, and it's going really well. Our satisfaction scores are, like I'm told from our CEO, like really, really high. Um, and so we're out there raising venture capital money and... Uh, that's all going really well. I am uh, don't know anything about business, not, notwithstanding the fact that my little brother is a venture capitalist who's been very helpful in all of this. Um, and so the response from the consumers thus far has been really, really good. The response from the venture capital community has been really, really good. And uh, we're going to go for it. Uh, but I'm going into it with the same attitude that I went into the book with, which is I'm willing to fail. I started the book, you know, uh, I, when I, I was saying this to you before at the beginning of the podcast, when I pitched the book to expert to, to, to publishers, nobody wanted to buy it. And I was like, I'm going to write it anyway, because I felt like, all right, even if only three people read this, they'll probably get something out of it. And, and I just feel like it's an important thing to do. So the, my attitude with the company is uh, I, those who use it, I know I'm very confident they'll get something out of it. And if we fail, we fail. Well, thanks so much, Dan, for coming, actually coming here to the studio, coming on my podcast again, and talking about the book and the app. The book you talked, we talked about the last time, but we talked about it more this time. And also, you're a very uh, busy guy. You got Nightline and Good Morning America to take care of. So, uh, so thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it. You ask great questions, man. It's a pleasure thanks, to Dan. talk to you. I got to work on my voice, though. That's the key. No, thing. man. It's all how do of... I do it? Like, it's... just give me one tip. <laughs> how do I? I how do I tips. talk better? But here's Breathe my tip. From the diet my tip for you is part of your charm is just you are completely authentic. So don't change your voice. Don't change anything. Just do what you're doing. I'll leave it at that. Cool. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.